I was almost giddy that I had lived through the period of getting renewable energy from nowhere to the bond market. Welcome to Climate Positive, a podcast produced by Hannon Armstrong, a leading investor in climate solutions. I'm Chad Reed. I'm Hillary Langer. I'm Gil Jenkins. In this series, we host candid conversations with the leaders, innovators, and changemakers driving our climate positive future. As the former global head of environmental finance at Citigroup, the founding chairman of the American Council on Renewable Energy and an author of the Green Bond Principles, Michael Eckert has helped transform clean energy from a niche market to a key industry. He now serves as a board member for Hannon Armstrong. In today's conversation, Mike shares how his belief in the magic of solar PV led him to travel the world in support of cleaner energy sources. After surviving a hurricane while on the outside of a Navy submarine, Mike went on to help bring electricity to Nelson Mandela's village, coalesce wind and solar insiders around common goals, and establish innovative financing models for a nascent industry. Additionally, he explains why efforts to expand renewable energy need to focus on Wall Street rather than the White House, and how doing something useful remains the best response to today's challenges. So with that, here is Mike Eckert, Hannon Armstrong CEO Jeff Eckel, and Hillary Langer in conversation. Mike, thanks so much for joining me and Jeff today on Climate Positive. It's great to have you here. It's an honor to be on. Thank you. So at the start of your career, you served in the U.S. Navy submarine services. Did you know that you wanted to eventually focus on renewable energy? No, but there were some awakenings on uh, the power and importance of nature that I distinctly got and remember those days of being in the ocean and uh, you know, realizing what is nature all about here. And so it had a distinct impact on me. It set the stage for other interests later. You did have one particularly fun ride outside the boat. Uh, oh, I did have that one fun ride, yeah. We were in the Atlantic north of Bermuda and uh, discovered a hurricane. There weren't satellites in 1967. So now we're in 50-foot seas in a 100-mile-an-hour wind. Then up comes what we discovered as a true rogue wave that we guessed was 150 feet tall. And we just submerged right into the face of it. And it went over us. And there were three of us outside the submarine up on top of what's called the sail, that thing that sticks up off the hull. So uh, we held our breath for a while, and the submarine <laughs> came back up to the top, and, and it, didn't, it didn't return to Lake Michigan. You know, it returned to the hurricane. So now, now <laughs> so pick your poison. Uh, do you want to be holding your breath underwater, or do you want to be uh, – and it was very violent. This was solid water coming down on us and us submerging into it. So it was, it was a very violent experience. You're holding onto the submarine while holding your breath and it's going under? The submarine has a hull and then it has a section that sticks up. Right. And that's the fairing around the periscopes. And so we got blown down inside that. And so I had two life chains on and was just underwater and underwater a lot. So um, I was I was thinking that the sail, that part that sticks up, had actually broken off because the the sound was so tremendous. So I thought we were sinking in 33,000 feet of water. So I was actively trying to unchain from where I was with thoughts of swimming back to the surface to rejoin the hurricane. <laughs> uh, it, was a, it was a little hazardous moment. 
but we got through it. And uh, that experience taught me the power of nature. It's way different than we think living here on land. So how did you move from rogue waves to renewable energy? It's kind of like I did everything else first and then realized where I wanted to go. At GE, I was in all power systems, but uh, quite a bit of nuclear power. At combustion engineering, I was the head of marketing of the largest coal-fired boiler manufacturer in the world. So I did coal for a couple of years. Uh, United Power Systems did gas-fired IPP development. So I did nuclear coal and gas before I went back to renewables from the Booz Allen days in the 70s in uh, 1995-ish. I just made a decision. I was not going to do nuclear coal and gas anymore. I was going to go back and do solar energy. And it was just a career decision, just a personal decision. Like, okay, I've done all that other stuff. I don't like it. And I trained as an electrical engineer, just fascinated by what solar PV is. It's a big diode that converts photons of energy light into electricity in wires. That's pretty magical. So I just said, I want to work on that. I want to make that successful. And the thing I could bring to it that it doesn't seem to have is financing. Because in order to deploy that technology, you've got to pay for it. Well, the Department of Energy R&D budget doesn't have enough money to pay for all the $100 billion a year of PV we install every year today. So where did that money come from? It came from Wall Street. So in the mid-90s, I really went after a personal goal to bring financing to solar energy. Throughout the 70s, you focused on new energy technologies. How was that talked about at the time before global warming and climate change were part of our common lexicon? The late 70s was the era post-oil crisis from 73. Uh, the government formed ERDA, the, the Energy Research and Development Administration, in 75. It uh, then formed up DOE in 77. And it was the Carter days. It was all about uh, energy independence on oil plus damage to the environment. The climate word didn't really show up until, in my recollection, until about 1990. It was environment, energy and environment. Those are the two words that even many people use for our field. Climate is dominant now, but in, the, in those days, it was energy independence and dealing with the environmental damage of energy production and use, particularly production. You then moved to General Electric. What was your focus there? In 1981, GE got a request from a big industrial client called Big Three Industries in Houston to deliver a cogeneration, or what we call now a uh, combined heat and power power plant under the new law called PERPO, the Public Utility Regulatory Policies Act that, that ordered utilities, they had to buy the energy output from alternative energy sources, meaning solar, wind, re renewables, and cogeneration, and what we now call the IPP model. Well, it started with that project. It had never been done before. So here, an industrial customer wanted to implement the law. And this is 81, and the law went challenged up until a Supreme Court decision in 83 as to whether the law would stand. So we were actually implementing a power project under a law that was being challenged to the Supreme Court. But GE decided to go ahead and do it. And we had formed a cogeneration marketing team 
in GE and I was more or less the secretary of that. So this request from Big Three Industries sort of fell in my lap. And so we organized to get it done with all the different players, the turbine manufacturing plants, the installation and service engineering, or what we now call EPC, and uh, all the bits and parts that have to go into putting a power plant together. But GE, even though GE was the leading player in power plants, it had never delivered and owned a power plant. It always sold it to a utility. And so this is quite revolutionary. And uh, long and short of it is we, we hired Skadden Arps, the law firm in New York, to draw up the, the documents to implement this under this new law. And it came back for the first review of those documents. And the plan was GE would build and own the power plant and operate it, and uh, GE Capital would finance it. But when it came back, the loan document specified that, of course, GE would be recourse to GE. <laughs> Whoops. <laughs> <laughs> Can't do that. And uh, there was a smart guy in the room from GE Capital who said, you know, Big Three Industries is a single A credit and Houston Lighting and Power is a double A credit. You know, if we could really strengthen these power sales agreement and steam sales agreement to be rock solid contracts, you know, we could look through those contracts to the credit worthiness of the off takers. And uh, of course, that became first time it was ever done that became the standard financing that we have today in the IPP industry. Mike, a historical note, I financed my first cogeneration project at Hannon in 87. Until you just mentioned the timeline, I was not aware of how close that was to the Supreme Court decision. Yeah, you were only four years past. Yeah. Yeah, and I, let me support that. What happened then when the Supreme Court decision was in favor of purpose standing, a whole new industry of lawyers and financiers went to work on that GE model because Skadden Arps then had the documents. And of course, Skadden Arps lawyers went to work at every other law firm taking those documents with them. So it was really the gas-fired IPP industry that got born as you were doing in the 80s. And that model got perfected and all the lawyers knew how to do those documents. And all the financiers agreed to the, they'd rather have the credit worthiness of the off-take utilities in those days than to have the recourse to the developer of the project. Because who knows if that developer is even going to be in existence a year from now, but the utility wasn't going anywhere. So that structure really hit a nerve in the whole industry. And that is now the standard model around the world. It's just the standard way of project financing today. Were you able to draw on that GE model when you then looked to establish solar financing abroad in Europe and India and Africa? You're very active with the Solar Bank Initiative. What were some of the overlaps there like? Well, it was the same issues we were dealing with. Uh, in those days, late 90s, I was going to Europe, India, and South Africa as my primary target areas in financing solar in India in those days, which was all off-grid solar. It was against the rules to finance poor people in India. The only accepted collateral for a loan in India in those days was land. Mm -hmm. And poor people didn't own land. And so how could you arrange a financing? So we, we stood up a program to train a thousand bankers and their senior executives creating solar loan as a bank product line like auto loan, sewing machine loan housing loan, now you have solar loan. And we actually created that as a product line for banks in 
India and over three years, I had a team of about 10 people, all Indians and former bankers doing the training. It's an interesting mix of locations from India to South Africa and Europe, so distinct. And they're probably looking at solar in different ways. Why did you select those three areas? My program was to develop financing, investment support and financing for the off-grid solar. So we needed to have a solar market starting to happen. I mean, it wasn't my role to create solar PV manufacturers and distributors and installers. And we wanted to bring the financing to an industry that was struggling because it didn't have financing. In other words, in those days, uh, the industry was implementing in a way that they could not succeed because they just had little bits and pieces of money from USAID and DOE and, and the European Commission, and they were starving to death. And they needed capital from the lending sector and equity from the investment sector to make it go. In the case of South Africa, it actually started when the European Commission gave a grant to the European PV Industry Association, EPIA, and it's had John Bonda to send a renewable energy trade mission to South Africa to create an export market for European manufacturers. On that trip, I met a gentleman named Herman Boss, who's still a good friend, to create an off-grid solar company. And to do it, we had to do it with 100% equity, and it had to have real muscle behind it. And we ended up creating a joint venture of Shell Oil Company in London and ESCOM, the electric utility of South Africa. So the 50-50 joint venture, and they each committed $25 million to it. So it was well-capitalized. And uh, Herman Bosch became the CEO of it. We were going to work in the Eastern Cape and KwaZulu-Natal on that section of South Africa and the rural areas. They even did uh, Nelson Mandela's home village. His office actually called the company to say that, that the president, Mandela was president at the time, that he wanted to give a two-day party at his village to celebrate what we had done. And it just so happened that I was in South Africa the day that the party happened. And I was there and I met Mandela and it was all quite the adventure. What were people most excited about during the celebrations in Mandela's village? Celebrating that his village had light. It could end the use of candles and kerosene lamps for the first time ever. Getting light into the rural areas is what it's all about. Transforming lives. I've actually been in people's houses actually only in India, not Africa, for this experience. But when the families, particularly the fathers, when, when they think about having light for their children, they, they burst out crying. This is the biggest change in their lives for generations. And also solar electricity for water pumping, because mm -hmm. now they can have managed agriculture versus just being you know, exposed to nature and whatever nature delivers to you. So it's light and uh, water pumping. I would also say it's for um, cooking. Instead of wood-fired, cataract-producing fires and huts, uh, based on your good work in India and South Africa, we tried to do this in Indonesia. Utter failure from a business standpoint, but solar home systems were, were taking off to do exactly as you said, put uh, light on the equatorial communities that only have light from six to six. 
sun goes down at six o'clock and kids still have to read. Coming back to your domestic initiatives after working around the world, partying with Mandela, I believe your next step was to come back to the States and start ACOR, the American Council on Renewable Energy. How did those experiences then inform your mission and your priorities at ACOR? Generally, yeah, it kind of skips a very important phase, which is work in Europe, because to get to India and Africa in those days, you had to fly through Europe. So I fell in with the real renewable energy radicals of Europe. These were the real missionaries pushing renewable energy policy forward. Hermann Scheer, the late great Hermann Scheer, who was a member of the Bundestag and was pushing solar energy across Europe. Hermann Scheer had a conference on financing renewables. It's kind of a revolutionary thing to do in 1998. And he and I got in quite, I don't want to say an argument, but a debate on what was really needed. And I was pushing financing, not social programs. And uh, even though California did the social program cash subsidy approach, I had tried to get California to do financing under Solar Bank and everybody else, but they went with the subsidy. Again, that was 1998 also. But Herman Scheer listened, and, and my point was that to get a 15-year loan, which levelizes the front-end cost of a solar system over a lengthy period of time, you would need 20 years of guaranteed revenues. And, and Herman Shear said, well, why is that? I said, well, you got to have assured revenues to pay off the loan. And very interesting little experience. Uh, he said, come with me. And we went, walked down the, the road in, in Bonn to where the development bank, KFW, was headquartered. And we went up to see the president of, of KFW. They were good friends. And uh, eventually the president said in English, uh, yes, Dr. Shear, Dr. Eckhart, it's correct. We need 20-year revenues. And if, if you can get that change made, because the, the law had been passed for the first feed-in tariff with the five years of revenues, so if you can get that change to 20, he says, I'll institute the solar loan program for all Germans. And if you go back in history, there was never a study, never a hearing, no nothing. It's just all of a sudden KFW announced that they were initiating the solar loan program for all Germans. In those early days, how are proponents of renewable energy in Europe selling it? It was principally anti-nuclear. That renewable energy was, was an alternative to nuclear power. There was the beginnings of climate and the issue with coal-fired power. And that was generally in the news that renewable energy was going to displace coal-fired power. But the reality is that was a false cover story of politics because the politicians love coal-fired power because it employed a lot of people, particularly if you have a construction program and you're continually building new coal-fired power plants. These things take 10,000 people, workers, on a site, and it employs a lot of people. Whereas nuclear power had finished its construction period from the 70s, and it was no longer employing a lot of people. So from a politician's point of view, coal-fired power was a huge social plus and nuclear power that you didn't really care about. The politicians wanted to keep everybody's eyes off of coal because of the jobs. There was a lot of political cover to what was being said at the time. But solar was an answer to both of them. But I'd say for the solar leaders that I was working with, their principal motivation was to stop nuclear. How did those experiences then inform your mission at ACOR? and your focus there and priorities? 
the creation of ACOR was because uh, Herman Shearer convened a conference in uh, June of 2001 in Bonn, Germany, to create the World Council on Renewable Energy. I was one of two Americans there. And he asked me if I would chair it for the U.S. And I said, sure, fine. So I you know, came home from that trip, had breakfast with three good friends in the industry, and we decided to create the American Council on Renewable Energy. <laughs> <laughs> so that's where Acre got born at a, a breakfast at a restaurant in uh, downtown Washington. And then through that summer, I had various meetings with various association CEOs and things like that. And uh, just called a meeting September 4th, 2001, one week before 9-11, it so happens. And uh, about 10 people came to the meeting and we founded uh, ACOR. And ACOR's mission was, again, to advance finance, investment and financing for renewables. We want to do something totally different, which is instead of lobbying Congress, we would set out to lobby Wall Street because we realized doing what we were doing, that's where the money is. There's no money in Washington. So it's a big fight over almost nothing. Mike, I remember the very first invitation to REF, Renewable Energy Finance Forum, which great idea. And you put it at the Waldorf Astoria. Mm -hmm. That was brilliant. That meant this industry had arrived. That was the message. Nobody was going to miss a renewable energy conference at the Waldorf Astoria. We were renewable energy people. We never got to go to places like the Waldorf. This was awesome. That was the whole point. During my GECE and United Power System days, there were three or four times I attended an energy finance conference at the Waldorf. They were all at the Waldorf. And uh, the first one was in 2003. that ACOR produced the Renewable Energy Finance Forum. It was the first renewable energy finance conference in history. I call you the father of the U.S. renewable industry because in my experience in the 90s, the solar industry was siloed, the wind industry was siloed, the biomass industry was siloed. There was no notion of a renewable energy industry in this country until you put ACOR together. Thank you for that. More than me, I think ACOR had... Okay, so I founded ACOR, then ACOR got all this great work done of creating the industry you're talking about. But it was, it was literally true that in coming home from these trips to India and South Africa and Europe, I learned that uh, in Europe, it, Europe had transformed itself from solar, wind, geothermal, hydro into the renewable energy idea because politicians didn't like to have to work with wind and solar in each of these individual things. They wanted a whole industry. So we really had a very targeted uh, strategy of educating senior people in the financial services sector about renewable energy as a means of getting them active. And uh, I remember recruiting speakers for the first conference, and I called a banker who had led the financing of my last successful cogeneration project. And uh, I asked him if he would like to speak at, at REF. And he said, well, Mike, you know, I do gas-fired power. I don't do renewables. I said, did you do any renewables? He said, well, yeah, I did two wind farms and a landfill gas last year. And I said, then why did you do them? He says, you, you know very well why, because it was an important client and the numbers were. 
I said, can you get up on stage and just say what you just said? That we're transitioning from prospective successes to current successes. You know, there are important clients of banks who are doing renewables and the numbers work. That's what this conference is about. And he did. He got up on stage and he said exactly that. Mike, one other thing that I remember being very influenced by was your phrase at ACOR. Well, first, the renewable energy industry was a bit of a circular firing squad. <laughs> the wind folks didn't want the solar folks to get a subsidy that they could get. It was really not a very functional organization. But by putting the renewable energy label on it, this particular quote stuck with me, ACOR isn't against anything, we're for everything. You, you change the tone of the industry in a way that I think just needs to get a lot of credit. You, that's where I say you created this industry. Well, now that, that's actually true. It's a lesson I learned at General Electric. There's an idea at General Electric that business does not occur in the presence of negativity. That's why you don't get into an argument with the guy you're trying to sell a coal-fired power plant to. Our slogan, as you point out, was and to create ACOR was for for renewable energy and against nothing. And people just love that phrase. Wow. I remember the then head of the American Petroleum Institute, Red Cavaney, I said that to him and he came around his desk and gave me a bear hug. And he says, finally, UAU renewables people have figured out how Washington works. People that don't know how this works are against everything except the one thing they're for. And that's what you guys have been doing. He said the winners are just for the one thing they're for and forget the rest. Just be for your thing. He says, you know, API is not against any non-oil. We're just for oil. So the industry really accepted us. And our battle was with the trade associations of renewable energy, the solar, wind, geothermal, and so on, that felt that we were stepping on their toes. They wanted to stay siloed. And, and DOE had whipped them into competing with each other. People didn't know it, but in those days, the associations were actually DOE contractors. DOE paid them each $100,000 to just put on an industry conference. So that was a big transformation just philosophically to say we're creating an industry and not trying to win an argument. Mike, I love how you talk about being financed instead of funded to reach Wall Street. That is still a, a, a vocabulary that is still getting infused. The Washington Inside the Beltway crowd still talks about getting funded. There's very little consciousness that Wall Street is actually the source of funding through financing. And that transformation really happened, as Jeff was saying, through the conferences and the education we were giving. You know, ACOR uh, created a program called PREF, U.S. PREF, Partnership for Renewable Energy Financing, which was actually a subgroup of actual managing directors in banks that were not VPs of government relations. They would actually come down from New York for these meetings, and these were real bankers that competed against each other in doing deals in renewables. And they agreed to cooperate and not compete uh, in this group working with ACOR. And they really appreciated the opportunity because normally they're frozen out. They're not allowed to speak to a senator or a congressman or anybody in the White House. But under this cover, they could. 
it was about once a month, there was a gathering in Washington and we'd actually go into the White House, the EOB, not, not the West Wing, but actually meet with top White House staff and officials and also go up on the Hill and, and meet with senators and congressmen. And the idea was uh, the, that group would not lobby. It would never say vote for this bill. It would never say, please extend the tax credits. It would never say vote for this person which is lobbying. Instead, we would answer questions, again, to educate. What questions do you have? And mm-hmm. uh, it's just amazing. These, these people work on literally 10,000 issues a day. So how can they become an expert on how solar energy is financed? And why is the tax credit relevant? So I do want to make sure we can touch on your time at Citibank after working both in politics, and then on Wall Street through ACOR, you were recruited by Citibank. And while you were there, established the green bond principles. Could you give an overview of what drove this and why that was important? I announced in 2008, a two-year notice that I'd be, quote, retiring from ACOR in 2010-11, just because I'd spent 10 years building it. And we were starting to repeat. I was doing the same thing over and over again every year. And I thought I'd get some fresh blood in here and take it to a new level. And uh, also, I could use a break from working six and a half days a week for 10 years. (laughs) My view since the 70s under the studies with Carter is because renewable energy is all front-end loaded and capital cost, financing is everything, cost of money is everything, and eventually where this ends up in success is in the bond market which is where the longest term, lowest cost capital lives, if you could make it to the bond market. And in 2013, two years after I joined Citi, it was clear that renewable energy was reaching the bond market. And I was almost giddy that I had lived through the period of getting renewable energy from nowhere to the bond market. The bond market doesn't need a definition of green. It needs an opinion that something is green. You know, they go to Standard Poor's and Moody's and Fitch and and so forth, and they get credit opinions, and they have ratings, and then they get consultants. And the pricing of a bond is set by the underwriters. They don't say they placed it. They say they priced it. It's like real estate. If you price it right, it sells right away. And so I really found myself the only one in those rooms and conferences in London and Paris who thought on the way to go. And I had a conversation with a, a lady named Suzanne Buckter from BAML, Bank of America, Merrill Lynch, who was a bond specialist. And we agreed to have dinner in New York when we got back. And we did. And uh, we agreed that we're going to have to write this guideline for so-called green bonds because nobody else except us seemed to understand the bond market. So we agreed to do that. And I had a flight to San Francisco from JFK the next night. And so I said, I'll take a run at it. I'll send it to you for comment. So three hours on a flight to San Francisco, I wrote a four-page document. And the Green Bond Principles is still a four-page document today, so many years later, eight years later. Very, very simply, we took the way the bond market works and we attached behaviors that bond issuers had to carry out in order to call it a green bond. Mm -hmm. And the proof that it's a green bond is that an investor interested in green bonds would buy it as a green bond. They would, they would buy the bond. Okay, done deal. That's how the bond market works. You don't need a fixed opinion. And we completely avoided 
the very idea of defining the word green. Hmm. Um, you know, because notwithstanding my efforts to get you to use carbon count in the green bond principles. I think the only error we made was not using something called carbon count. <laughs> What's carbon count? What's carbon Tell count? us about yeah. that. It's a quantitative analysis on the amount of carbon emissions that's avoided by the investment as tons of carbon per thousand dollars of investment. That becomes a bench, quantitative benchmark on how good is your investment. Good. And Jeff, why were you pushing for that to be included? I've never used the phrase green in my entire career because there are so many shades of green. And what we're really talking about is carbon. And we're not talking about Crayola crayon shades. We're talking about actual carbon and the carbon intensity. That's where I have a slightly different aspiration for this industry. Yeah, I think carbon count when you did it was 10 years ahead of its time. What I see today is everybody wanting more definitive criteria by which to evaluate investments and financings. They want it quantified, not shades of green, and it's moving in that direction. I think what we accurately assessed was it was 10 years ahead of its time, that the world had to adopt even the very idea of green as an investment thesis, which then evolved into ESG, of course. And there would be a battle over whose methodology would become the world standard. And um, as recently as three weeks ago, I was in a conversation with strategy consultants at IBM who had been tagged with coming up with IBM's offering in the ESG world. And uh, you'd be so proud to know that I recommended they look at carbon count. God bless you. See, I mean, there's, there's the qualitative world and the quantitative world. We felt that it, the world had to go through a qualitative period of even adopting this in their psyches before we agree on whose arithmetic methodology is just perfect. <laughs> so I actually, I actually recommended that IBM adopt carbon count for its global offering to its corporate clients and, and government clients to maintain a quantitative database and forecasting methodology on carbon. I do remember a CFO at Southern Company listening to me talk about carbon count saying, well, that sounds good because they had just done a solar project. And then he stopped. He said, wait, you could do that for our brown bonds too. I said, well, yeah, you can. <laughs> um, well, Mike, this is the fun part of the show. Some hot questions. The most important advice I have ever followed is you fill in the blank. Do your best. The best feedback I ever rejected is? Anything negative. <laughs> All right. The best oysters are from? Chesapeake Bay. What creek? Probably off the Chop Tank River. Okay. The sustainability phrase or acronym we should ban from our lexicon is? Barriers. When we founded ACOR, I banned the word barriers on the industry. Barriers are what keep government people working day after day because there are barriers that have to be overcome. But when you're starting an industry, there are no barriers. Uh, just go do it. To me, climate positive means? Uh, working on solutions 
I find a, a, a great divide between the climate policy world and the climate action world. The climate policy world is very negative. It's negative on the issues we face. It's negative on the likelihood of success. It's, it's argumentative and everybody dislikes everything except the one thing they're for. And uh, on the industry side where you and I work, it's just the opposite. Skip all that. Just go do something useful. Love it. Mike, I absolutely want to thank you for your leadership in this industry. It has come a great personal sacrifice, but you have indeed created a renewable energy industry. And I'm very grateful you serve on the Hannon Armstrong board. You make us a better company, a better board. Very much appreciate it. Thank you. Thank you. Climate Positive is produced by Hannon Armstrong. Tell us what you thought about the conversation. You can send us show ideas by tweeting at us at Hannon Armstrong or send us a note at climatepositive at hannonarmstrong.com. If you like the show, feel free to give us a rating or share with a friend. It helps others learn about the show and our climate positive mission. I'm Chad Reed, and this is Climate Positive.